Welcome to Mandatory Redistribution Party. Today's episode is an interview with Wendy Liu, software developer, writer, and author of Abolish Silicon Valley, a disillusionment memoir about crashing out of the ideology of big tech. Against the backdrop of atomizing everyone into the gig economy, hoovering up some of the biggest profits the globe has to offer, and enshrining a reliance on technology during a climate crisis, how does the ideology of Silicon Valley insulate and sustain itself despite serious mounting criticism? But before we can take these questions, first I want to thank all of our investors on Patreon.com who took a chance on a plucky team working to design a new kind of MP3 file that contains light-hearted radical left law. We have not found a market yet, and we may never turn a profit. But if you want to get in on our IPO on the ground floor, simply head to Patreon.com slash Mandatory Redistribution Party to see your stock options. As ever, thanks to our supporters and to those who use smiling emojis when sharing our content around the internet's gleaming tubes. Thank you, and welcome to the episode. So first I want to say, I really enjoyed the book. Uh, thanks so much for reading it. Would you be able to just give people who aren't familiar with it just a very big picture overview of what to expect? Sure, yeah. And first of all, thanks for inviting me on the show. Um, really happy to be here. So the book, Abolish Silicon Valley, I mean, the title is a bit tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> it's, a, it's a memoir. It's, a, it's like a theoretical memoir is how my publisher describes it. And the goal of the book is to appeal to people who don't know anything about the industry or, or maybe, you know, thinking of joining the industry, but aren't quite there yet, and also people who are already in it. Um, and it's trying to describe it in a way that is critical, but still accessible, and also in a way that can be understood by people who are in it and who you know have heard a lot of the critiques of the industry and just don't believe them. So I wanted to try to do something a little bit a little bit different, which is partly why I wanted to do an autobiographical story, because I wanted to write about my own experiences and my own disillusionment with the industry, and hopefully through that personal narrative, give the reader something to latch onto, so something that would, you know, help them understand why I advocate now for the abolition of Silicon Valley. So yeah, the, the book came out last year with Repeater Books, and you know, the general premise of the book is that there is this thing that we call Silicon Valley, but it is not, it's not something we can think of in isolation. It's not this, you know, magical thing that came out of nowhere and that's going to fix our problems. It is an outgrowth of capitalism. It is, you know, a particular industry that has formed around a certain set of developments in the mode of production and has come up with all of these myths, all of these self-justifications, all of this, these cultural artifacts that make it seem like it's something different, that make it seem like it's something shiny and new, but it's really not. And when I'm talking about, you know, the abolition of Silicon Valley, what I'm really trying to say is that we can try to imagine a world where Silicon Valley wouldn't exist and where we have no need for Silicon Valley because we have a different way of incentivizing innovation. We have a different way of distributing wealth and that it's not going to be an easy thing. I mean, there's, you know, for example, the prison abolition movement, no, no one is saying that it would be easy, but you know, the whole point is that it's worth having a kind of horizon to to think about a horizon that helps us um, understand alternative ways of organizing society. And so 
I think, yeah, the, you know, the call to abolish Silicon Valley, it's, it's not just to say we need to swap out Mark Zuckerberg with a, a woman or a slightly nicer person or, or whatever. It's, it's about saying, you know, this whole thing is, it is resting on this horrible foundation, capitalism, and, you know, we want to try to build a system, build a world where we don't need people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg to roll over all of us in exchange for delivering what they call innovation. And you mentioned a lot about the myth-making and the self-justifications. It seems like a book about an ideology, how there's like a superstructure that maintains a global myth of a technocratic future. Was that your aim, to focus more on the ideas that uphold Silicon Valley? Yeah, that's a great question. That is definitely what I was going for with the book. And I think the part of the reason I wanted to focus on the ideology, I wanted to focus on the kind of personal elements and how, how it feels to be inside the structure is because I think there just hasn't been enough discussion of that and how that contributes to um, why there's such a bubble. Here's the thing, like, you know, if you tell anyone inside the industry, if you talk to someone who's really wealthy and who's really successful and you tell them the critiques of the industry, you can just like watch the expression on their face be like, oh, I don't care, right? And, and you know, not everyone, but most people who are in these positions, they've adopted this shield, this ideological shield, so that they don't have to think about the harm that not only their industry, but this whole system is doing to everybody else on the planet. And and I think that's fascinating because I think there's um, there is a reason those shields get erected you know, it's partly material circumstances, but it's also partly there's something psychological where, um, and this is what I was trying to ex explore with the first chapter, the, the first section of my book where I talk about my childhood and um, how I, I basically sought refuge in computers because I didn't really have much else going on for me. And, and I think that is something that is pretty common for a certain type of person in tech who is attracted to the industry precisely because it gives them an escape. It gives them a way to feel valuable, it gives them a way to feel like they're part of something that they weren't able to get elsewhere for whatever reason. And the problem with that is that, you know, that's a good thing. Sure, it's nice to find a community, it's nice to feel like your skills are valuable. It's not great when that uh, that community catapults you in this position of power over other people and then you you feel like you can justify anything you do because it's like, oh yeah, I was, I was bullied as a kid or I didn't have any friends. Um, you know, I, I I grew up poor or whatever, and I think this is this is symptomatic of a deeper problem within capitalism, where you have because there's so little, uh, there's you know there's so little community that you can really find. Everybody is being increasingly atomized, and also at the same time you have this massive income inequality. There is a kind of narrative that people who are able to transcend the income divide or who are able to, you know, find a community or find some success, they're able to tell themselves that they deserve it. That because they grew up in a way that was, you know, some somewhat suboptimal, they're able to say, well, okay, well, sure, now I'm making $20 million a year and I'm my lifestyle is directly contributing to something I think is bad or, you know, I'm working for a company that I, I, I know is harmful. But still, I mean, I, I earned it, right? And I wanted to explore that. I wanted to talk about how this kind of self-delusion sets in and why it's so difficult to dislodge because this is something I'm very intimately familiar with. And the, the process of writing this book was in some ways very uncomfortable because I had to confront my own self-delusions. I had to think about the ways in which I lied to myself and tried to make myself feel better about Silicon Valley, about, um, about capitalism, about my place in the world. 
it was not a fun book to write. Definitely. I would say like the first few chapters, I really struggled with those. And I wasn't even sure, like, is this a good idea? Am I going to regret writing this? Because I'm working out some weird personal stuff in the process of writing this book. Maybe everyone's going to hate it. So yeah, uh, but I, I do think that part of the project I'm going for with this book is talking about not just the the cold hard facts, not just you know like here's what this comp- here's the product this company makes and here's the harm it has. I want to talk about why people can be very aware of the critiques and just find a way to ignore them because I think that is true of a large large part of the industry because we all know the critiques now, right? You know the media is talking about tech all of the time. It's there's always something about how big tech is harming us. You know, if people don't see a place for themselves in the critiques, if they don't see if they don't see a way that they could participate in an alternative, then they're just going to reject all the critiques. And and that means not just um, you know, this kind of standard liberal media, big tech is destroying democracy critique. I also mean, you know, the larger critiques of tech as an agent of capital as something that really just enhances exploitation, that allows a few billionaires to accumulate tons of wealth while their workers are, you know, sleeping in cars. I think those critiques will also get lost if the people in the industry and people in positions of power don't understand, you know, how they're implicated in them and just kind of they find a way to absolve themselves of the guilt or the anger that they should feel about it because they've chosen to identify with a more individualistic vision where they're thinking like, well, you know, I, I am just this ubermensch. I have just accomplished so much. I am this amazing developer or manager or venture capitalist, whatever. And all the critiques that all these people are coming at me with, well, they're just jealous. I think that is unfortunately a pretty common strain in the industry. And I'm under no illusions that my book will be read by these people. (laughs) I think um, the audience is not going to be, you know, the wealthy venture capitalists. It's more, I would say, people who are either not in tech or who are maybe newer to tech. I've had some conversations with people who are students, who are maybe a couple years out of college and who are thinking about joining tech. And I think my hope is to just to get to those people, the people who are gonna be the future of the industry and have them understand how deeply corrupt it is. Um, And in the hopes that they will make different choices or just think about things differently. Because so much seems grounded in such young formative experiences. People are being recruited into these huge corporations like when they're 20. There must be a reason why they'd rather have someone that's not gone out and gained a decade of life experience. They want someone who's kind of a bit of a tabula rasa to be like, we're Google, we're your friends. Now sign up here for your life. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ageism in the industry too, right? And like when when I was really excited about tech, I saw that as a good thing. I was like, oh, well, I'm young, so I, I, I want people to you know, hire more young people. I don't really care about the 40-year-olds who are just unable to find a job because everyone sees them as too old. But you know, now I'm getting older and I'm seeing my friends kind of think about this too. There is a strong current of ageism that has to do with a bunch of things, you know, weird stereotypes about how old people just like can't learn as quickly. Mark Zuckerberg had this weird line about that, but also just a very um, uh, kind of cold, calculating decision about people's ability to be overexploited, right? Because if you're 20 and you're fresh out of school, you're eager to prove yourself, you are going to work really, really hard if you think you're being given that chance. Right, and you probably don't have attachments. You don't necessarily have kids or a family. You can just work hundred-hour weeks, no problem, in exchange for the possibility of moving up the career ladder. If you're 40 and you have a family, especially you know if you're if you're a woman, 
and there's recognition that you have childcare or domestic responsibilities, it's a lot harder to get you to work 100 hour weeks. And and yeah, I think, you know, you're, you're spot on. There's something really sinister about these companies deliberately recruiting these very, very young kids, really, straight out of school who don't really have much cynicism, who aren't necessarily conditioned to be skeptical of corporations and telling them, this is your family now. Just be loyal to us and then we'll reward you with all of the, the money, all of the stock, all of the massages and ping pong tables your heart could possibly desire. And I think, yeah, that is something that hopefully people will be more skeptical about, but these companies have managed to build a pretty loyal workforce at least among you know the employees that they're treating well, simply by getting kids right out of college and just giving them the opportunity to advance and making it into kind of a calling, not just a job, but you know a mission. Like we're all in it together, we're gonna change the world. There, there's something really sinister in that and I think it doesn't work that well on people who are older and more, more skeptical of life. So obviously by the time you got to university, you were already choosing to do a degree in tech, you already knew what your interests were. And I found it really um, interesting you mentioned doing not prom as a teenager. Because I remember, I think we must have been like of the same generation of, you know, indoor, friendless, online teenagers. We did an episode recently, like very nostalgic about what the internet used to be like in that specific early 2000s era before it had been like primitively accumulated and there's only like seven websites. As much as it was like you know, the World Wide Web full of information. It was politically... I don't remember any politics on there beyond George Bush memes and new atheism. But now, on Twitter, you can find 15-year-olds posting about Adorno. Do you think something's actually, like, changed for the younger generation that what we thought as our, like, nostalgic bulletin board haven was actually just kind of libertarian techno hell? <laughs> Yeah, it's so interesting to hear that you also knew Nal Pran. It's I've never talked to anyone who's read my book who has <laughs> has also experienced Nal Pran. Yeah, I mean, it's the internet back then. It was a it was a simpler place. <laughs> it was um, there there was a lot more. I would say like just weird parts of it that I think in hindsight were really bad for young people to be on. But I didn't know. I mean, I did I did spend a lot of time on 4chan. Um, just thinking like, oh, this is just funny. Like, this is just what humor should be. Not not recognizing how pretty messed up a lot of it was. Um, but yeah, I think it does seem like something has changed. And, you know, the, the resurgence of the left in the last few years. I mean, hearing people who have been on the left for a while talk about it, I get a little misty-eyed because, you know, it's the way they talk about it, it's like there was a desert, not just on the internet, but just everywhere, right? Like, mm you just didn't really have that many people who were receptive to that kind of messaging. And there wasn't much media representation. There didn't seem like there were that many spaces. There were, I don't know, a few leftist groups that clung around and mostly through selling newspapers at rallies or whatever, but it just, it didn't seem like there was that much hope, there was that much future. And it, um, you know, the membership of the Democratic Socialists of America in the US, um, I, I believe the average age was like, I don't know, 50s or 60s. For a while, until until 2016, when all, all these people joined, and I think there is a marked difference in the just the the way that the left is now, the size of it, the vibrancy of it compared to maybe several years ago. Um, yeah, and I and I and I hope that's good. Um, I I do think that you know I see some 15 year olds on like Twitter or whatever, and they they're so dogmatic in their beliefs about whatever <laughs> it is, and I'm like, okay, you'll. You'll grow. <laughs> you you won't have this exact line your whole life, um, but no, I think it's it's amazing, uh, and yeah, you know, when I was on the internet, I think the only politics 
I was exposed to as, as a kid was just the open source movement. And the whole idea of electronic freedom and how software should not be patented. And for me, that was quite liberatory and it was quite, quite beautiful. And I still think it is. I just think that the problem is that, that I, was, I was never aware of the larger political ramifications. I just thought like, oh, you know, yeah, copyright is bad. Sure. All right. Great. <laughs> That's it. You know, it never occurred to me to think about how our entire socioeconomic system is founded on the idea of property. And that intellectual property is just like a new terrain for property law to extend that will allow corporations to amass more money. I was just like, oh yeah, open source is so obviously a good idea. I'm going to be really virtuous and only use open source software, right? This very individualistic, naive way of viewing the world. And yeah, most of the, if there was any political content that I found online, I guess it would, would be like... Michael Moore stuff. I remember watching mm. a Michael Moore documentary. There's a lot of like Michael Moore commentary. He seemed like the most radical left-wing person who was given, you know, primetime air. So yeah, it's a very different place. And, you know, now it is amazing that you can just go on Twitter and uh, just talk to people. Like, you're kind of like, how? where did all these leftists come from, right? Like, where did mm. all these people come from? And, you know, for me, given given that um, it was really the last few years where I started thinking about politics at all. I guess the answer is just like, well, like look, look around us. <laughs> look at how awful this world has gotten. Of, of course, people are turning to leftist ideas because like they're they're broke. They're seeing climate change, you know, threaten threaten the future of this planet. They're seeing like three billionaires amass as much wealth as you know fifty percent of the population or whatever. And it's like, okay, yeah, the the times are are producing leftists. And yeah, the internet is changing. <laughs> and in a way, from your book, it sounds like that Silicon Valley is going somewhere to produce leftists via this incredible mechanism of getting people to do startups and play the lottery on their own future like that. To me, STEM always was, this is a sensible pipeline to a sensible job. But it seems that within tech, they've kind of convinced a generation of young people to be like, actually, why not play the lottery on this, have a much less secure life? much less secure income, much less secure sleep pattern, it sounds like. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I, I do, I'm not sure why that is exactly. Like, why is there so much, I don't know, interest in entrepreneurship? I guess you could you could connect it to just like the neoliberalization of everything and everyone has to be an entrepreneur of the self, right? And it's, you know, Silicon Valley isn't immune from that. I think on the other hand, though, it is worth mentioning that to be a startup founder is not actually that insecure. Right. Because like for the, you know, while you're doing your startup, maybe you're not getting paid that well. Maybe you don't know if your company has a future. But as long as you're as long as you're talking to the right people, as long as you have the right connections, you will be fine. Even if your startup fails, like my, my startup failed. And, you know, in our last year, we had so many acquisition talks with people. And the, the only reason that we didn't get a better acquisition deal is because we were all I mean, I especially I was just like, I don't care anymore. I don't want to do this if I don't want to work for another company in tech. Because uh, usually acquisition offers, so like let's say your startup is failing and you you don't want to do it anymore. It's very it's pretty easy if you have the right investors, the right connections to just get a bigger company to acquire you and then they'll give you a job. And it's basically like a signing bonus, right? Like whatever they pay to acquire your company, it's not not going to be that much for them. But for you, it's going to be way more than you would have made if you had just walk, you know, walk through the door the normal way. And, you know, my company, like, 
we were surrounded by all these other companies that had been acquired. And that's that's the kind of technical term, mm. right? Like where the, the product didn't really work out. Maybe they didn't even have a product. Maybe they had co-founder issues. They had product market fit issues, whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter because there are all these other companies, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Microsoft, just like all these companies that are, are just sitting on piles of cash and that are more than happy to pay couple of million, maybe a little bit more to acquire some founders, like a team of people who've proven that they can execute. Because that is a hard thing in tech, right? To find a team of people who can actually work together and not kill each other and build something. Even if it's not something useful, the ability to build something is quite valued. And yeah, and I think like there was a, one of the numbers thrown around that was definitely an estimate, but still, you know, it's not that far off. It's like, if a company is paying a million dollars per engineer through an acquire, it's a good deal. Like that's that's pretty pretty standard. So yeah, I mean, you know, to your point about it being insecure, it is, but the reason that people choose to do it is maybe like, you know, they the the nine to five secured life just seems kind of boring, but also because they know that they'll probably be fine. Like if if you went to the right schools or if you are really good at hustling and reaching out to people or you have some sort of connection to them, you know, like if you if you know enough VCs, you will get a safe landing no matter what happens to your startup basically and you can see this in like all all of these cases of people whose startups fail that they just their startup fails because you know their workers file a lawsuit against them and get their business shut down oh they'll just get become a partner at a at an accelerator this is a true story mm-hmm. um they their startup fails because their i don't know their product is just pointless and you know, they'll be okay they'll be okay they'll get like a partner gig They'll be acquired by another company. They'll be fine. I think for the for the people on top, for people who've demonstrated allegiance to capital, uh, they will always have a soft landing, and they'll always have basically a golden parachute. And I think yeah, that is part of the appeal of startups, right? Because you you know that, and, and this is something that I talk about in my book. Like I I knew that if this startup didn't work out, I could always just go get a job at Google or we would be acquired by a company similar to Google. It never really occurred to me that I was risking anything. And so I think that is quite different from the kind of entrepreneurialism that the, you know, Silicon Valley companies love to advertise for their gig jobs, right? So like Uber and DoorDash, Deliveroo, all these like tech companies, they love to talk about how you can be your own boss and you can be an entrepreneur if you work for them, if you do deliveries for them or ride share for them. And that's a very different kind of entrepreneurship than the kind that Travis Kalanick, the CEO, the former CEO of Uber, is is doing. Because with this kind of entrepreneurship, you have all of the risk, but you have none of the upside. <laughs> mm. If Uber, if you know, you're working for Uber as a rideshare driver and Uber IPOs, you're probably not going to get much stock. I think during the IPO, they gave out stock to such a tiny percentage of drivers and such a tiny amount of stock. And it was only to drivers who have worked for a very long time. So yeah, I mean, it's if your company does well, you're not going to benefit. But if the company doesn't do well, or if they decide to lower wages, then you are screwed. So yeah, I think it's it's worth thinking about how this the concept of entrepreneurship is used in very different ways, depending on if it's for the startup founders or if it's for the people at the very bottom who, the ones who are 
being exploited and who are ultimately generating all of the wealth that the startup founders are able to accrue. Mm, because there's just so much money floating around for people that can actually make stuff that there's just no actual <laughs> material risk. Is that is that like the bottom line? Yeah, I mean, it, it's tricky because there are people who are entrepreneurs and who have failed and, you know, who have maybe lost money and who've maybe suffered as a result. There are people who have suffered severe depression through the results of, as a result of being a founder. It, it can be kind of lonely. It can be kind of demoralizing. But at the same time, I think it is worth noting. I mean, it's, it's, it's really important to the Silicon Valley story that it is very clubby and it, it, it's not about, it's not about rewarding competence or like rewarding people who've built something useful it's as, as much as it is creating an, an atmosphere where people can build things that investors are happy with. And that can mean, you know, like if you just get on personally with an investor, they will find a job for you. They will find something for you. It doesn't matter what you're good at, right? Like there's this mystique about um, how you have to be technical to make it in Silicon Valley. A lot of the most wealthy people in tech don't even have technical skills, right? They have like history degrees or something. It's just that they've landed in this circle, maybe family connections, maybe they're really good at hustling, they did an MBA or something, they found a way to get into this industry and demonstrated enough loyalty to capital, because that's ultimately what it is a matter of. They might not think of it that way, but that's what they're doing, that you know, when they're picking investments, when they're trying to build products, they're really thinking about how do, how do I help my limited partners get a return at the end of the day, even if they don't want it. They, they want to think about it in terms of I'm creating a moonshot, right? Like I'm, I'm innovating, I'm bringing, I'm democratizing finance or I'm uh, connecting the masses or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's all about like what's going to make money because that's, those are the structures. Those are the very material incentives that they have to be, have to be following. You mentioned showing loyalty to capital. And I think one of the strengths of the ideology that's trying to pull people in is that there's a whole spectrum from I genuinely believe this can do good in the world all the way to this will just make me rich. And that's quite a wide net to start pulling people in. And I'm sure most people fall somewhere in the middle of the bell curve. Is it ever talked about that making an absolute ton of money and helping the world might ever be in some kind of conflict or friction? Uh, great question. Yeah, I think recently, in recent years, there has been more tech critique, but it's usually not coming from inside the house, right? It's not coming from the Bill Gates of the world. It's coming from scholars, it's coming from reporters, activists who are critical of the industry, but whose voices are not likely to be amplified by, you know, the, the tech press. They're, they're not likely to be celebrated by the powerful players in tech. And I, I think that there is a very strong strain within the industry that really believes that you can make a lot of money while making the world a better place. And in fact, the two are almost synonymous or like very, very deeply entwined in that if you're making a lot of money, it's probably because you've made the world a better place. And if you've made the world a better place, and of course you're going to make a lot of money. That's just, uh, that's just the laws of economics because, you know, it means if you make a lot of money, it's because people have had their lives dramatically benefited by your product. Of course, how could you question that? What a weird what a weird concept that like that's not true. And I think that unfortunately is taken as gospel in some circles. And you know, to your point about the spectrum, I think um that that's a great way of thinking about it. I, I do think that the in a way, like in my head it's not so much a spectrum as it is you just have like these two beliefs that are just entwined. And I think people find it very hard to um believe one without the other. Mm. And so right, because uh if you've if you've made a lot of money, then you kind of have to believe that you're doing good for the world. Otherwise, what are you doing? Otherwise, you've wasted your life. Otherwise, you've 
spent your whole life chasing this um, futile nihilistic goal. And I think that's really hard for people to think about. And I think, you know, in a way, I'm really grateful that my startup failed and we sold for essentially nothing because I think there's an alternate world where I I would have made a lot more money and I would have um, found a way to ascend the ranks of Silicon Valley. And then I would have become a very, uh, like a very different person because I think having this much money, um, having money handed to you in a way that is wrapped in this myth of meritocracy, I think that completely rots your brain. I think it makes it very hard for you to see clearly. Um, Being too close to power, being able to believe that you've achieved something amazing simply because you're just an amazing person, I think that really breaks you and it makes you unable to see the world as it really is. And I think unfortunately that is a problem afflicting a lot of people in the top tiers in the industry where they, they really think that they're so smart. They really think that they're doing good for the world but they're just unable to see beyond the bounds of their own ego because this world has rewarded them so much and it's given them positive press, it's given them money, it's given them their name and all these uh, publications or whatever and uh, a lot of Twitter followers or whatever. And it you know, tells them like, oh, you're so good at innovating and we're so, we're so proud of you, keep doing what you're doing. And it's, I think it's really hard for them to see that there's an alternate perspective you know, the, the kind of left-wing critique which ties their accumulation of wealth with just the degradation of society. And I don't I don't think they're, I think for a lot of people, you know, it's just, it's too bound up in their self-identity. They can't question that. They can't question whether this whole system might be flawed because if it is, then what happens to them, right? Like, you know, you mm. it's it's really hard to walk that back. But the book's really useful because it is talking through, here is the, like the ideology landscape that you live in. You can believe all this stuff when you're inside of it. I think it can be hard for people to think that like, Jeff Bezos is just completely naive, but it seems particularly like ironic with tech in particular because these major social media platforms and the expansion of the internet is allowing people to come in contact with all kinds of inconvenient ideas. Like it seems increasingly incredible that people manage to maintain their ignorance while they're also on these platforms that Elon Musk can tweet Marx was a capitalist who even wrote a book about it. And people can be in the replies and be like, Oh, just just so you know, mate, I think that might actually be 100% wrong. And somehow none of that like permeates, that, that people are talking so strongly, and I think with genuine passion about social good, but I don't think they've ever heard of the concept of surplus value or Marxist alienation or the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. I just think those ideas are completely alien. Is anything happening with the expansion of communications and that these people still are on big platforms, that over time it becomes harder to avoid coming into contact with these inconvenient truths? Or is it that the gated walls of this community are higher than ever because they do also control the internet? Oh, that's a really interesting question. So I, I think that, you know, I don't think that the, the fact that the internet is dominated by tech companies is necessarily going to shield the people in power from the critiques. I think it's more that they're just good at ignoring them, right? I mean, like, think about how many kind of pieces of information you come across every day that you ignore. I think uh, we, we all do it, right? Like, you you see a QAnon conspiracy theory thing, and you're like, oh, it's that thing again. And I'm sure that when these rich people see some leftists posting, I don't know, guillotine memes in the replies, they're just like, oh, those like guillotine people again, so annoying. Yeah, not they're not shedding a solitary tear. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. They're they're just like, ugh, like it's so annoying. These people, these people are just terrible. I'm I'm sure they, they tell themselves that. 
And I think what is interesting about the internet and um, and maybe like orthogonal to that, this rising tech worker consciousness that we're seeing in, in the industry at all these different companies where you have people who are, you know, working as maybe engineers, designers, product managers, or frontline workers in the case of companies like Uber and Amazon who are doing something different. They're they're uh, turning to a different kind of um, political ideology. And some of them are trying to unionize. Some of them are trying to, you know, create these petitions to do something like to not work with ICE, for example, or to not sell to the U.S. military or not work with police departments or just to not hire a particular person um, who who has, you know, toxic views or something. And it's like there, there, there is a kind of political activism happening within the industry that a lot of these tech leaders can't ignore because it's coming from inside the house. It's coming from their own workers. And the workers are ultimately their source of wealth, they're their source of power. And so they can't exactly ignore it. They have to at least pretend to pay lip service or find some other way of dealing with it. They can just fire all of the workers if they wanted. But so, yeah, I think, you know, to your point, there there is a, a strand of criticism that is definitely being heard, whether or not it's being actually heated or just being dismissed as like, oh, these the social justice activists, they're they're back again. I think it might be more of the latter, but it's definitely gotten to the point where um, because these people have leverage, because they they're the ones who are generating the wealth for these companies, they do have a certain kind of leverage and they can't be so easily dismissed. So even if the critiques aren't necessarily exactly being taken to heart by their their bosses, at least they're being they're being dealt with. They, you know, they, they have to be acknowledged in some way just because they are getting at the source of power. And I think that is hopefully going to happen more in the future, uh, just because, you know, with, with these people, like with uh, the Elon Musks and uh, Mark Zuckerberg's of the world, change is not going to happen by being mean to them on Twitter. As much as I think mm. that's really fun and I really enjoy seeing it, you know, that's not... My theory of change does not include like yelling at these people on Twitter. Maybe it's a tiny part of it. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Sure. But I think ultimately, you know, if there's going to be any change in behavior and how these people operate, there has to be a kind of threat to their actual levers of power. Like, you know, how do these people get their power from? Like, well, it's because they own corporations that make them a lot of money. And how do you stop these corporations from making money? Well, the labor movement is a pretty tried and true way of doing that. That has been, you know, there have been a lot of um, successes with that in the past. And it is a little bit different today. The industry is filled with a lot of people who are bought into the ideology. But I do think that there is a lot of potential. And especially because there are workers at these companies who are not given the same kind of privileges. So we're seeing this kind of like caste system emerge at a lot of these tech companies where they will hire some people as full-time employees and pay them a lot of money and give them stock or stock options and, you know, just treat them as if they're like part of the family. And then they'll hire other people as contractors who don't necessarily get the same benefits, who don't have stock, who are paid way less and who are just kind of treated like trash. And I think that is pretty pretty natural in a sense that this is how capitalism has behaved has operated in many other industries so it's not surprising that tech is doing this but i do think that this has the potential to create a kind of rising class consciousness as people in these positions realize wait like i'm not benefiting from google uh you know why why are they allowed to claim that they treat their workers well when i'm not getting paid well and also with the people who are colleagues of contractors and just you know, rec- the people who recognize like, oh, my, my colleague is doing the same work as, as I am, but they're getting paid less. 
and you know it's probably because I went to Stanford and they went to this other school. And so I think there there is a potential for solidarity th to be built despite the system. It's tough, right? Because the 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 boss has a lot of tricks up their sleeve, including mm. just ideology, the fact that they can just pay people more and have them not think about it too much. So it's going to be an uphill battle. But yeah, I, I do think that there is a lot of potential for the tech industry to change through workers in you know different parts of the industry to kind of like band together and make make demands that their bosses do something differently. Something that's reassuring about the potential of the labor movement is as much as Silicon Valley is kind of desperate to depersonalize all labor and hide workers away and automate what they can or even just I think a lot of what we think is automated is still there's still someone in the back doing something you know these places still need offices they still need catering they still need transport you can never remove the functioning of the Silicon Valley away from hundreds of people that are working on all these tasks even before we start talking about the people that are actually designing the tech itself. It's probably a bit of a uphill journey to try and get solidarity between people on incredible pay packages and cleaning staff. But I think if that's the kind of solidarity you can make, then it stops the, the bosses being able to do anything. It's just traditional 20th century labour movement back again. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, you know what you're saying about how Silicon Valley has been able to pretend that there's you know no no workers here it's just it's just magic it's just the ai is doing everything i mean i think that that is increasingly being unmasked right like this this myth we we're starting to realize that like that's obviously not true when your amazon package arrives at your door it's because some someone at some factory has put that in a box and someone else was able to drive it to your place and i think there's been more conversation too about the very material work that goes into assembling devices in the first place right like where do the minerals come from? You know, which war-torn countries are they taken from the ground using probably child labor or some, some other form of like heavily exploited labor? You know, how are these products being assembled? It's like, well, it's in factories where people are treated terribly and are exposed to chemicals. There's so many parts of the supply chain that are often forgotten or neglected when talking of Silicon Valley because the way the tech press loves to talk about it, it's like, oh, look at these like 10 engineers in a room who've managed to produce something amazing. You know, good good for them. Yeah, now they're all millionaires. Amazing. And it's like, well, what about all the other work that goes into producing this that is just not counted, that is not treated as actual work because it's seen as invisible, seen as infrastructure? I think this is um that is actually pretty fundamental to the story of Silicon Valley. If you think about like Apple and uh, the fact that Apple's able to produce so much profit and therefore able to pay at least some of its employees a lot of money, like well, not all employees are counted there, right? The people who are digging the minerals out of the ground they're not Apple employees, and they will never be Apple employees. Their labor is just discarded. It's it's treated as invisible. And same for the people who are building the devices in the factories. You know, they're, they're not thought of as Apple employees, even though, of course, they're fundamental to making these products. And this is not a Silicon Valley invention. This is not new. This is something that corporations have been doing basically as soon as they could. And, uh, you know, since the, the 70s and the 80s, when we've had this globalized economy that is mediated partly by you know these container ships the fact that you have the technology to be able to send things really far away and to be able to um, ship in a way that's really really efficient well it just made it a lot easier for companies to outsource parts of their supply chain and then we're seeing companies like Nike that don't really own 
they don't really make anything, right? They, they have a brand and they get other people to make it and take the risks. You have all these fast fashion companies that are, you know, their products are all being made in the same place in like Bangladesh or, or Vietnam or whatever. And it's all they own is the brand that differentiates them. Um, and I think it's, yeah, worth noting how what Silicon Valley is doing. It's really just riding on the coattails of changes in corporate structure in the, mm. you know, the last like 30, 40 years with, uh, the neoliberalization and the globalization of the economy, they're taking advantage of the fact that it is very common for companies based in the the global north to just own a very small number of assets, like just intangible assets mostly, and to employ a small number of people. And then the rest of it, all the rest of the work gets done by contractors, subcontractors mm-hmm. in another country where they're just paid a pittance. And, you know, then the CEO is able to say like, oh, I... Uh, me and my like 100 employees, we produced billions of dollars in profit because we're just all such brilliant engineers or whatever. They're able to get away with this lie and pretend that like the the all of the value is produced by these Stanford engineers or whatever. And it's like, that's not exactly true, but you know, the narrative is very helpful for these people to justify their wealth. So that's why they stick with it. I was only just thinking about it while you were talking, but I feel like there's a big parallel in overseas labour, which as well as cutting costs, it's to make sure the labourers, that if someone finds out, oh, these jeans I got were made in completely substandard living conditions, completely terrible quality of life wrapped up in what it took to have a worker make these, but they're on the other side of the globe, that app and gig economy paradigm allows the the hiding of workers that are even in your own community my partner left her phone in an uber and we found out the uber driver just lives just around the corner like these are just the people in your community but you can't talk to them you just have to push like one of three buttons in an app my mom's always used the same taxi firm her whole life tips very generously and when i asked her once i'm saying you know i think you're really over tipping on these taxi drivers and she said no no listen next time i phone a cab instantly there just instantly there she knows all the drivers that kind of community-based transactional economy not possible through an app you can just communicate in star ratings five for acceptable any less for i want you to get sacked for some reason (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah no definitely and i think uh, it's really interesting how these companies have all shifted the role of um the manager onto the customer and so you know instead of workers having Mm. a manager who will maybe tell them like what they're doing wrong what they're doing better and make decisions about hiring and firing it's instead shifted onto the customer and then uh just operationalized by an algorithm and so, you know, the algorithm will say like, oh, this person gave you like a four-star rating, you're fired. <laughs> and there's no way to contest that really, right? It's just like you have to call someone and then maybe this person is another contractor, the, whoever the support person you're talking to, and it's just like a huge mess. And these companies have done a really good job in trying to destroy even like the most basic amount of solidarity between customer and worker. So it's like, yeah, they're, they're hiding it and they're also trying to make it almost an adversarial thing and like they're trying to make workers interchangeable so that maybe one day they can be replaced by robots even though that's really not technically feasible but um they they like to pretend it is um all these companies are like basically selling off their self-driving car divisions uh, by the way i don't know if you saw that which is pretty funny oh, no. because they claimed they claimed for a while like the only way they can be profitable is if they get self-driving cars and it's like oh interesting interesting so they're basically saying that they're never going to be profitable unless they can find a way to monopolize all of infrastructure and just like raise their fares or yeah i don't know 
be able to pay workers less than reproduction wages. It's it's unclear what path the path for profitability is for a lot of these gig companies, but they're um, continuing to make a lot of money. And there's even still plenty of companies that, as far as I know, don't make any money, but just dominate a huge space in our life. Relatedly, like I really like that when you're talking about what needs to be changed about Silicon Valley, is that it's got such a huge hold on our culture, be that our way of engaging just with art or just music, things we want to do in our pastimes, but also just the culture of talking to your friend, which obviously the importance of that's gone through the roof since we've all been staring at screens for over a year now. If everything has to be mediated by a platform, if our downtimes on Netflix and our uptimes on Zoom, someone in tech determines every aspect of my ability to have interpersonal relationships. Yeah, so I, I read Mark Fisher's work um, a few years ago, and you know, Mark Fisher was one of the founders of Repeater Books, my publisher, and it really just blew me away because I think he does such a good job of talking about culture and how culture is being increasingly hijacked by corporations and he has this line about talking about um, sports stadiums, I think, and I think this was maybe an essay about the London Olympics or something like that. And he talks about how you know sports stadiums are just emblazoned with the logos of corporations, and it, in a way, it gets us to think that like there's there's no way of having sports, there's no way of having culture without corporations. And I think Silicon Valley is really just doing something very similar, where because we associate watching movies or TV with Netflix and Amazon Prime and whatever other streaming services there are, we associate talking to to other people with Zoom, like we're doing right now. We associate, uh, yeah, music with Spotify or Pandora, and we associate getting a car with Uber. I mean, you know, if you watch a contemporary TV show, you'll see the characters talk about Uber. They'll they'll just drop it in the way, you know, we might talk about Google or like Kleenex. It's become it's become like a noun or, or a verb, like, oh, your Uber's arrived. And I think there's something really, really pernicious in that because we're watching in real time a company turn from this kind of upstart that is obviously founded on exploiting workers and avoiding labor law. We're seeing it turn from something that is contestable to something that just becomes part of the infrastructure of daily life. Something that is just, you know, part of the air we breathe. It's like, oh, you just call an Uber. That's that's what you do. Mm-hmm. And I, that is something that really concerns me and it worries me because it means that, well, that's really hard to contest when it's become something so so commonplace and something that feels just uh, like in the background. Um, recently, the Biden White House announced that Uber and Lyft would be offering rides to vaccine centers. And, I, you know, I think that really just sent this bolt of dread through me because, I mean, once once these companies get to the point where they're seen as like the natural choices for the government to partner with, well, what hope is there really to be able to challenge their dominance and to be able to imagine a world where there is no Uber, there is no Lyft. Instead, you have, I don't know, better public transit and also people who are actually employed to drive people around. Like, why, why can't we have those things? And it's, you know, the, maybe the answer is that the more that our world is dominated by these corporations with their very particular way of running services, the harder it becomes to imagine alternatives. But equally, you know, the more imperative it becomes that we imagine alternatives, because this way isn't working. There are so many, so many casualties of this kind of like app-mediated um, capitalist mode of delivering services 
obviously Uber drivers, delivery workers, you know, anyone who has to work for these platforms, but also um, artists, people who are putting their music on Spotify and who are not getting paid very much because the business model is just, it's, it is predicated on extracting as much value from artists as possible and not, not paying them very well in return. Uh, I think there, there are so many cases like that where there are a lot of people who are very unhappy with the arrangement, but they just don't have the power to do anything better. And so for me, I think it's, it's really important to think about how um, our interactions with other people are being mediated by these services in a way that makes us think that it is capital that we have to thank for these services. So, you know, hence the common right-wing talking point uh, in response to leftists being like, well, how, how can you critique capitalism? You have an iPhone. <laughs> It's like, yeah, I have an iPhone, which was built by workers. It was every person who was involved in touching it or thinking about this iPhone. It was done by workers. And these are workers who I feel solidarity with. And they're all being exploited. And, you know, I want them to have better wages and working conditions. I want them to have more control over their lives. But that's not possible. I think it's worth holding on to this alternate viewpoint where we don't have to think capital for anything. Capital what is it good at? It's a colonizing force. It's good at taking credit for things done by workers, often in a substandard conditions. And instead, we should be remembering, you know, who is the worker? Who are the people who have gotten me the services I want? Well, it's, you know, this, uh, this guy who lives around the corner who happens to drive an Uber on the side. It is this artist who makes music and puts it on Spotify and gets paid like $12 a month or whatever. Uh, and I think it's, yeah, worth focusing on the human and thinking about how these technological relations between people are they're obscuring the very human relationships because we're you know we're thinking like oh this person is just i only know this person because you know they they drive for uber and we have like an, an uber mediated relationship it's like well no this person is also a member of your community and you're all citizens of the same place and you're all um part of this global global human society i don't know i'm running out of words here but yeah i think it's it is worth trying to find the language for that sort of thing and not thinking of someone merely as just another partner in this at mediated mediated transaction because i think that is the world that these companies want to build and that's very scary to me because it's a world in which they have more and more power and they prevent us from being able to imagine any alternatives and you finish off the book by writing a bunch of demands, right? You, these are the demands for what it means to abolish or reform Silicon Valley. It's such an unenviable task because you've got this very difficult tightrope to walk. How difficult was it to try and pare that down into like discrete possibilities for reform and not just think, well, under capitalism, this probably just can't happen. We need a whole new economic system before we could even begin to get any of these people to cede any power. Mm, yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think the, so. The way I was trying to think about it is, I tried to find like what are the things about the tech industry that I admire, that I still admire even today, and what are the things that are just incompatible with global human flourishing. And I think, you know, the things that I admire is like, well, okay, well, there is this technology that can be developed in a way. That is useful, um, and there's also this um, kind of optimism that you find among some people that is is laudable, even if they're kind of wrong, right? They they think that technology, harnessing technology in a certain way, can improve people's lives. It can improve efficiency. It can make people happier. Yeah, there's some truth to that. The question is, who gets to decide how that is done? And right now, the answer is capital. The answer is, you know, people who are being paid 
by um, others in order to get a return on the Saudi Arabian Wealth Fund or, I don't know, the Walton Family Fund or some Yale University's endowment. It's like, ultimately, it is capital that uh, steers. And that is the problem. And so in trying to write that chapter, I had to think, okay, well, what are the things about the tech industry that can be extricated from this capitalist milieu? And what are the things that are just, you know, we just can't have them anymore. And so um, some of the things I propose are the very standard, like socialist or even just social democratic ones, things like workers need more power. They need the ability to um, to survive without having to sell their soul to Uber. They they need, you know, better public services, um, better housing, just, you know, more ground to stand on so that they can say, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do this job. It's, you know, not paying me well enough or it's humiliating or it's bad for the planet or something. I think that's that's a pretty common refrain. The other thing is, I think, is it's about infrastructure and it's about who owns our infrastructure. Because right now, I mean, as we just talked about, so much of our infrastructure, physical and digital, it's owned by these corporations. And you know, I think that is a key part of what I see as the problem with Silicon Valley, the fact that you have these commons essentially that are enclosed by these corporations that have just managed to get there because of a particular political economic regime and because they have this money that comes from whatever venture capitalists they've managed to convince. And that has given them the ability to monopolize key aspects of our communal existence. And the effects of that are things like, you know, for example, every time you go on the internet, you just see ads everywhere. Mm. <laughs> the, the, your whole experience is, is, is surrounded by ads. It doesn't have to be that way, right? It doesn't, like, we don't have to live in a world where there are, like, eight billionaires who control as much wealth as, like, 50% of everybody else. You know, it doesn't have to be like that. But um, I think the way Silicon Valley is set up, because of its role within capitalism as kind of the driving engine of profit within capitalism, that is what we have. And so, yeah, in, tr in trying to write this chapter, I mean, I, I don't know if I necessarily, it, it's not like the final word on the subject. I, I, it was more just like kind of sketches and just trying to say like, if you wanted to think about a different world, here are some areas. But, you know, my, my goal is ma mainly to say that we can have an economy that's based on something other than profit. It's based on something other than, you know, allowing the accumulation of wealth in perpetuity. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the end goal that I pose as the kind of um, counterpoint to Silicon Valley is a world where we have collective ownership of the means of production, whatever that means to anyone listening. And I, you know, I think that's, that is a possibility that is precluded by um, the way the industry is set up, because right now what we don't have is any, we don't have any sort of collective ownership of anything. It's really just like um, a few people who, I don't know, went to the right schools or know the right people. They own large, you know, a large proportion of the stock in these various companies, and they're billionaires as a result of monopolizing gateways and advertising, or just the internet, or finance, or whatever it is. And I think this is. This is a world that I don't want to live in. And I think for the vast majority of people on this planet, there are so many better alternatives that could be imagined and that can be fought for. It's not gonna be easy, but it, to me, it does feel like a worthy struggle. And 
Tory Redistribution Party was produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was made by Ella Jean. Thank you again to Wendy Liu, whose book, Abolish Silicon Valley, How to Liberate Technology from Capitalism, was published by Repeater Books, and you can find more info in the episode notes below. Thank you to our Patreon supporters and to those who give us kindly quote tweets on the regs. We know who you are, and you are an indispensable part of this operation. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Hong Kong and log off.